conflict has once again broken out in the Caucasus region between the nations of Armenia and Azerbaijan over the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh, as the ceasefire between the two nations overseen by Russia has once again been broken. Fears remain that the border clashes could escalate into another full-scale war once again between the neighbors two years after the previous war. Which brings us to the question today of what is happening currently and how the situation will develop. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is Liam Brucker Casey. Hi, Liam. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. And focusing on the international aspect today is Trish Salib. Hi, Trish. Hey, Drew. How are you? I'm doing well. All right. Let's get started, guys. So I want to get into the background of the situation, specifically why is the Nagorno-Karabakh region disputed between the two nations? To do my best to keep it brief, both Armenia and Azerbaijan were republics within the Soviet Union during the breakup, not even after, but actually in the years 1988-1989 to uh, the Soviet Union's dissolution, um, Armenia and Azerbaijan began to have conflict over a region that was officially part of Azerbaijan, uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh region, that was uh, primarily populated by ethnic Armenians, although there was a significant amount of Azeri people. Ultimately, uh, with the breakup of the USSR, Armenia was victorious. It was able to protect this ethnic Armenian area and actually expand it beyond um, what had previously had an autonomous designation. Skipping forward to uh, 2020, you have uh, Azerbaijan uh, declare war on uh, this autonomous region uh, in Armenia known as Artsakh and Armenia. And we'll get into it later, but uh, Azerbaijan won like quite handily. Um, it was able to annex large portions of land that it had not had control over previously. And now where we are is um, after this ceasefire, um, two years later, it's been quite tense. And just now, uh, this month, Azeri soldiers shelled a few regions within Armenia's borders and occupied some territory. And that kind of gets into the next point, Leo, my next question of like, for how long has there been conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the region? And like how many wars or conflicts have been started between the two? Do you have anything to add on to that point, Trish? So one of the first major outbreaks happened in 2016 with the four-day war and a good chunk of Armenian territory at the moment was taken over. Yeah. And then with the recent 2020 conflict, Azerbaijan was able to occupy, as Liam said, more parts of territory that were traditionally that they did not have control of before. That is correct. I see. Moving on to still in the background of the situation, Russia was the original guarantor of the ceasefire between the two with the most recent war in 2020. Do you think Russia's projection of force being weaker due to its current forces involvement in Ukraine has been a motivating factor in the breaking of the ceasefire? Um, I, I think uh, absolutely. I think there's, I, don't, I doubt that that is the only reason um, for Azerbaijan's more um, bold step this month, but um, certainly Russia has been kind of a power broker in the region. 
while it certainly did not defend or protect Armenia in 2020 from most of the damage that it took during the war and most of the land that it lost, it still involved itself. It made sure that it had a military presence uh, of peacekeepers in the region. But at the beginning of September, uh, Ukraine reconquered nearly a thousand miles, uh, a thousand square miles of territory that had been occupied by Russia. And this was seen as a huge blow to Russian morale, to Russian projection of force. And likely Azerbaijan saw this as a perfect opportunity to strike while Russia was distracted, kind of reeling from this loss, um, and maybe to test the waters, so to speak. I see. I do want to get into Azerbaijan's perspective on the current conflict. And particularly at first, I want to focus on the role of the current president, Ilham Aliyev, uh, in pursuing this conflict, because he was in charge, if I'm correct, when the 2020 conflict broke out and in the conflict in 2016. Sure. Aliyev is the current uh, ruler of Azerbaijan. Um, he's been um, in charge since 2003, and he took over after his father passed away. His father had been um, in charge for nearly a decade. And he oversaw the uh, war uh, with Armenia in 2020, the second Nagorno-Karabakh War, which uh, was able to reconquer a lot of land that um, decades prior had been controlled by Azerbaijan within the Soviet Union. But he is definitely the shot caller in Azerbaijan. He's a strongman dictator, essentially. So this was absolutely a directive from Aliyev himself. I see. Was there other possibly emboldening maneuvers? I do know that Azerbaijan recently did a new oil deal with the EU. Do you think this caused any potential leverage? Uh, yes, 100% with the Ukrainian-Russian war and most of the EU supporting and standing with the Ukrainian army. Russia has threatened to shut off the oil and gas lines to them. And as winter is approaching, many of the European nations are like worrying. So Azerbaijan opening up its natural gas supply to European nations was definitely a huge benefit and like made people more sympathetic towards them. I also want to get into, we mentioned uh, Russia as the guarantee of the ceasefire. Does Azerbaijan have any major allies uh, that have supported them in this conflict, whether that be past or present? Uh, yes, definitely. They have major support from Armenia's natural enemy, the Tur Turkey, and Israel. Turkey has had rough past with Armenia and the thing, um, still denying the Armenian genocide to this day. And um, Israel also, too, is... Not, doesn't have the closest relations with Russia to is also siding with Azerbaijan. And then according to the foreign policy, when fright broke out, um, they had key in 2020, they had key support from Turkey and Israel. And they are sending in like both Turkish and Israeli weapons, including drones. I see. So I also want to get into the support of the Azerbaijan public for the past war and the current events of whether they are supportive and any uh, economic concerns about that? Certainly, I think most, uh, it seems, Azeris are largely in favor of this war. I think given especially the success of the second Nagorno-Karabakh war in 2020, um, it was seen as a pretty uh, successful venture. A lot of land was taken uh, from uh, Artsakh and um, 
you know, with pretty minimal losses, especially like Trish was saying, aid, I, I think especially from Turkey, which kind of sees itself as almost a uh, brotherly nation. Both countries, Azeris and Turks, are Turkic people. Their languages are quite similar. Um, and I think they see themselves as kind of having a shared history. Um, and Turkey sees Azerbaijan as a natural ally that it can use to kind of spread its influence in the region. And it supplied weapons that were pretty devastating to Armenia. I also want to switch tacks and look at Armenia's perspective on the conflict. There have been some criticisms of the current prime minister in Armenia, Pashinyan, in his past and present handling of the conflict. Uh, do you have anything to say on that, Liam, as the domestic analyst? Um, I would say that Pashinyan was roundly criticized, I think, at the end of the war for the ceasefire and the treaty that he agreed to and had Armenia agree to, which many saw as a huge capitulation. Uh, many thought that this was unjustified. Personally, I don't know if Armenia had many other options. When Armenia came to the table, things were not looking good in 2020. I don't know exactly how long Armenia could have held out or what it could have done at that point. But at the end of the war, the large loss of land was seen as a deeply unpopular thing. And especially now, given Armenia's lack of improvement, um, there are new, no new allies yet that have Armenia's back. Um, I think a lot of people are questioning Pashinian's leadership. You mentioned of the reluctance or like the difference in power that forced Pashinian uh, to come to the table. Do you think that is due to a current dis power disparity between Armenia and Azerbaijan or even like Russia's reliability as an ally to Armenia in general or a combination of both? Without even any allies, uh, Armenia was certainly in 2020 and certainly now far less powerful than Azerbaijan. It was not as wealthy. It was not as populous. And so it already kind of had the deck stacked against it. The major ally, if Armenia would have any ally, it would be Russia. But Russia chose to generally not get too involved, not really get its hands dirty, which many Armenians felt was somewhat of a betrayal, I think. And similar to just add that, Russia was obligated to take care of Armenia. They saw themselves as a big brother and them not getting involved with the war really like hurt Armenia in the long run because Russia has its own issues to worry about. They're more concerned about what's going on in Ukraine. They don't really like have that much of a concern what's going on in the South Caucasus region as long as they have Ukraine who like to them seen was seen as a proposed threat. And the foreign policy believes that Russia is even too weak to protect any of its allies anymore. So who knows what the potential of Russian allies are going to be after this. And I do want to look at the major allies of the conflicting powers, particularly Turkey and Russia. I think you touched on this earlier, Trish, but like, do you want to go into, into any more depth on Turkey's support for Azerbaijan against Armenia and some of the historical roots behind that? Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Like I mentioned, there, like almost 100 years ago, there was the Armenian genocide, and Turkey still doesn't want to acknowledge that thing ever happened. Anytime they bring it up, it's, it never happened. What are you talking about? So when, like, it never really had that good diplomatic, like, diplomatic relations with it. 
So um, the first time anyone really like recognized, like it kind of created this power struggle when the United States, in like the beginning of uh, President Joseph Biden's administration, when he formally recognized the Armenian genocide as like being like, yes, it did occur. And that like had that power struggle where Turkey was like, no, like still in denial about it, kind of had this rift between U.S. and Turkey um, and like diplomatic relationships. I see. Is there any support at all for a, of course, the ceasefire that was brokered by Russia was broken. Is there any support for like a bilateral agreement between the two of them? Yes, um, the Azerbaijani ambassador to the UN wants to end the fight and have direct negotiation between the two states. And the United States also stands for a bilateral negotiation with the two of them and to come to a thing of mutual respect of the territory. Um, not much detail was given on how like they want to split up that air, the disputed area, but they are, both nations have made it clear that they are willing for bi- bilateral agreement as long as the United Nations is that third party. I see. Off of that point, I want to address this question to you both. Do you think part of the reason there's more support for a bilateral negotiated settlement and things is because Russia, who is the previous guarantor of the ceasefire, are in a relatively military weak position as we've kind of touched on in previous points. Do you think that's a real thing of like Russia's relative weakness at the moment prevents them from acting as the broker of any ceasefire or being able to hold any ceasefire in place? I think absolutely. Um, I think Russia in the past year has been uh, exposed, its military has been exposed as far weaker than most analysts had predicted and most people had assumed. Uh, that Russia was the you know, second greatest military power in the world behind the United States. But uh, clearly it has struggled against Ukraine, which was not uh, considered anywhere near the um, most powerful military uh, in the world. Um, and so just recently we saw Russia um, needing to mobilize now some reserve troops, which has caused a lot of uh, dissent in the country. But um, that the fact that Russia has to do that kind of demonstrates how far it has fallen in terms of its actual capabilities and certainly its power projection. I also want to turn away from just the South Caucasus region and then the two major allies, Turkey and Russia, and look towards to the west of the European Union and the United States, who have taken a more increased role in what is going on. So I wanted to address this to both of you. Do you believe that there's this renewed focus on the Caucasus region due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and more attention on that part of the world? 100%. Last time, like, within, with uh, former President Donald Trump, he really didn't care for the South Caucasus region because he saw there was no U.S. interest out of it. Within what was happening with Russia and Ukraine and, like, the threat of power being cut and not, like, the like cause of increased gas prices, people are now putting they're like turning towards the South Caucasus region because they can provide these natural resources that they're they're not having because of the Russian-Ukrainian war. I also want to take a look at um, the energy politics and what role this played earlier. You mentioned earlier, Trish, I remember the new oil deal that Azerbaijan has the EU. Do you think the because of the concern with Russia cutting off the gas lines to the EU, Azerbaijan feels more emboldened both militarily and diplomatically to get a settlement that they want out of Armenia because of their economic leverage? I think absolutely. I think Europe, uh, the European Union, uh, would like to somewhat portray itself as a 
an arbiter of peace, a force for stability um, in its backyard. But um, given its new deal with Azerbaijan, uh, that kind of comes into question, that ability to be a neutral power, be able to be tough on uh, certain nations if they deserve co certain consequences. This kind of concern existed for Germany uh, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, given that Germany was reliant to a large extent on Russian gas. And we kind of had the same kind of uh, worry where is Germany going to be able to stand up to its uh, supplier of energy? Looking at, you mentioned earlier, Trish, like United States, uh, what is the support for the Armenians within the United States? Because it seems Russia's reliability as Armenia's like major ally is in question at the moment. Do you think there could be uh, significant support for Armenia from the United States because of what President Biden did in recognizing the Armenian genocide? Uh, yeah, definitely. As of right now, the United States never took a formal stance of saying oh, we're siding with this, with we're siding with that. Most people are waiting to see what's going to happen. The most like that we got with like recognition was recognizing the Armenian genocide, which many nations don't haven't done yet. The one person that has openly spoken about it was Madam Speaker Pelosi, who openly condemns Azerbaijan and sen and Turkey for sending like all these weapons and then she called the Azerbaijan attacks illegal and deadly and some people it didn't sit right with people when she did it and um when she went in and condemned it because the United States again has not taken an official stance on any of the situation any situation going on and then on top of that too um speaker Pelosi also went on her own will to visit Armenia and she wasn't sent in by the State Department or the United Nations or anyone. She went out of her own accord. And she's done this in the past when she visited Taiwan and Israel. Like, And this isn't her first time showing interest in any sort of foreign politics. It's, And she has received major backlash for visiting both of these nations in the past. So we're just waiting to see what happens with the as the, um, the story progresses. Now that we've kind of covered different angles on the conflicts, I want to get to more summarizing final thoughts and summarizing what we've covered beforehand. So my question to both of you is, is do you believe that these clashes have the potential to continue to escalate into a potential full-scale war? Or do you think that these will continue to be clashes that, of course, are threatening and can cause casualties but are not to the same level as they were in 2020? I'll start with you, Liam. Um, it's hard to say. I think Azerbaijan, certainly now, um, compared to 2020, actually probably has um, even less to worry about. Russia is far weaker than it was in 2020. The EU is um, likely uh, to be far less um, aggressive in condemning and taking action to condemn um, aggression. now. Could the U.S. become more involved? It seems like there's a certain possibility that the U.S. might try to cultivate a stronger relationship with Armenia, but that would be something that takes time to develop and Armenia cannot rely on in the immediate future. Um, so it really remains to be seen how ambitious Azerbaijan uh, will be. Uh, what about you, Trish? Uh, I don't think it's going to escalate as much as it did in 20. 20, like both countries are willing to sit there and negotiate with the United Nations in a bilateral agreement 
And no one really wants to aggravate the situation more, especially since there is still that threat of Russia hanging on, even though they are tired, they are more focused on the Ukrainian war. So everybody's kind of just playing it safe. They're willing, they're willing to go the diplomatic route. Off of this, off of that thought, so do you think that is the route that things will happen next, that Azerbaijan holds the upper hand diplomatically and economically, but they will continue to, but they're going to look for a negotiated settlement with the UN? Do you think that's the route this is going to go? I think that's quite possible. I think Azerbaijan has secured a lot of what it, what you would expect it could hope for. Um, it was able to annex a vast amount of land, a vast majority of Nagorno-Karabakh, and basically turned the autonomous region of Artsakh into a, a um, barely hanging on kind of rump state that was just connected to official Armenia through a very tiny corridor. And so in many ways, it has really uh, weakened and rendered Armenia and Artsakh as non-threats. I don't know what more it would really gain from further aggression, but it is still definitely a possibility. I do, I do you mentioned a good point there of uh, Armenian Artak. Liam, do you want to go into that, of like the specific role that the Republic of Artak has in the conflict between the two nations? Well, Artsakh is basically the uh, autonomous region within Azerbaijan. It's, Azerbaijan already has currently internationally recognized borders. Um, within that, uh, the Republic of Artsakh, it's a not internationally recognized republic, but it is uh, autonomous and it did self-govern for a long time and still is, but its space has been reduced since the war. All of that is within uh, Azerbaijan's official borders. Um, and so probably from an, an Azerbaijani perspective, it was merely you know, reasserting control within what was rightfully within the country's legal jurisdiction, but clearly that's disputed. But. And if I am correct, uh, part of the criticism of the current Pashinyan for Armenia with the last conflict is that he was not consulting with the, with the Republic when he went, came to the negotiating table with Azerbaijan and thus kind of sold them out to a certain extent. Yeah, I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's the most I, correct I, terminology. Yeah, or the fairest, but I, that's definitely a, a very large perspective, I think, a lot of citizens you have to imagine there were scenes of ethnic Armenians who lived in Artsakh for the last two decades or more. Their families lived there for decades or more. And now, all of a sudden, they're told uh, that actually, even though there's no Azeri troops in this region right now, this has all been ceded to Azerbaijan. So you need to leave and go to either Artsakh or Armenia. And so people reluctantly left. They would burn their houses down because they don't want to leave anything to the Azeris who would move in, and they left everything behind. They burned their houses down, and they brought everything they could carry with them. I think I could understand why, regardless of how true it is, those people certainly would likely have a bone to pick with whoever was in charge and whoever negotiated that deal. Yeah. I think that's an important point to add on as we kind of round out this discussion, Liam of like the human side of this conflict, especially as we're experiencing more conflict in the world of like, there's a very much a human element, people affected by this conflict, not just us talking about it, but people and their livelihoods being affected. Um, do either of you have any final thoughts to add? There is one thing we want to talk. The Armenian Prime Minister Pashani addressed the United Nations to accuse Azerbaijan of unspeakable atrocities. 
There's evidence of cases of torture, mutilation of captured or already dead dead servicemen, numerous instances of extrajudicial killings and ill-treatment of Armenian prisoners of war, as well as humiliating treatment of the bodies. There was uh, recently circulated a footage of pretty unspeakable acts done to uh, an Armenian servicewoman um, who had been killed. Her body had been pretty horribly desecrated. I won't, I'll, I'll spare listeners the details, but it's uh, pretty horrid. And I think this has garnered a lot of outrage in Armenia and the international Armenian community, which has a large presence in the United States, among other countries. And so this is certainly not good for Azerbaijan's international reputation, certainly not in the context of this conflict, but it remains to be seen if it'll actually impact policy. I think that's yet another reason why continuing to talk about this and drawing attention to these events and that these things are happening is important. Um, this has been a great discussion and informative. Thank you, Liam. Thank you, Trish, for coming on. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Trisha Balon. Hey, Trisha. Hi, Drew. What headlines do you have for us this week? So, Russians are protesting and fleeing the country as Putin orders a draft for Ukraine. Iranian women are burning their hijabs. Post-Fiona fuel disruptions spark fear in Puerto Rico and Palestinian anger at possible UK-Jerusalem embassy move. Uh, A fair few consequential events to cover today, then. Let's start with the updates on the protests in Russia. So, Vladimir Putin has announced an order to mobilize Russian troops, drafting at least 300,000 additional troops since last Wednesday. While he claims the draft only affects those with military service backgrounds, there have been multiple reports from recruits with no previous military experience receiving draft letters. In response, Russian citizens are fleeing to neighboring countries to escape the draft or have taken to the streets in protest, leading to several arrests and many being faced with significant prison terms. A definitely delicate situation that will be important to watch in the coming weeks and months. And you mentioned the ongoing protests in Iran? Yes. So on September 16th, Tehran University student Masa Amini was killed by police for wearing a loose hijab, which violated Iranian laws stating that all women must wear head coverings in public. Mahasa's death has sparked protests around the country in which women are burning their hijabs and publicly cutting their hair short. Many are left wondering if this will remain as a hijab protest or if it will escalate farther into an anti-government movement. Another delicate situation that is consuming a nation that has drawn the world's attention. And you also brought up the humanitarian situation in Puerto Rico? After Hurricane Fiona swept through Puerto Rico, destroying multiple communities, power outages and a disruption in fuel distributions has been increasingly persistent leaving many citizens scrambling for necessities. Around 60% of the island's residents have been without power for the week following the storm making landfall. Puerto Rico's National Guard has been tasked with distributing fuel to citizens as gas stations have not been able to reopen since the storm. We can only hope that those people will continue to get the assistance that they need. And you mentioned conflicts erupting in Palestine? Yes, so following the UK Prime Minister Liz Truss's meeting with Israel's Prime Minister Yair Lapid, there's consideration for moving the UK's embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. There's been significant outrage from Palestinians that have called this a blatant violation of international law, as Jerusalem is still highly disputed between Israelis and Palestinians. There's been no indication of a timeline for finalizing this decision, but the UK's Prime Minister office has confirmed that it will be reviewed. Thank you so much for coming on, Tricia. Thank you so much for having me. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jasmine Delion, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, 
technical producer Andrew Roculia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.